Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Neil Haley Show. And I'm excited to again highlight this director, producer, about Ali's comeback, Art Jones. Art, thanks for stopping by again. We have more of a conversation, the story of everyone that was part of it. You know, we were having more of a, just laying it all out. But I wanted to kind of go into specifically enough more about the film in the way of how you went about really creating, coming up with this documentary art. Kind of go, you went into the story last time. Mm-hmm. Now we want to know, you know, specifically how you pulled all these people together to be part of this. Actually, it, it was kind of through osmosis and it was a organic process uh, initially. Uh, that is to say, when we first started, when I first started pulling together my team, my major question was, has someone else already done a film about this topic? Because I know that there were a number of other narrative films and a few documentaries out there on the life of Muhammad Ali. Yeah. And I just thought for sure, something about this, this seminal moment in the life of the great Muhammad Ali had already been done. I, we, went, uh, we went away for about a week and we studied uh, different films that were that that were done. We looked at the, the actual movie Ali with Will Smith in it. We looked at the uh, the trials of Muhammad Ali, which which were dealt with his court case uh, while he was uh, stripped of his title and uh, and was fighting against going uh, a ten thousand dollar fine and five years imprisonment for uh, for draft evasion. We also saw When We Were Kings, which focused on the the fight that he had against George Foreman in Kinshasa, Zaire, uh, Africa. None of them actually dealt with this moment that relates to his return to the ring in 1970 in the city of Atlanta. And that's when we came back after a week of, 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 of viewing our different films and we had decided that now we need to put together the actual development to create the film. With that in mind, I looked at who were the people that knew Ali between 1967 and 1970. And okay. within that, we said uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, there was Bill Russell, there was Jim Brown, uh, um, they had, there was also Juan Carlos and, and, and Tommy Smith. There, there were obviously his wife, Khalila Ali at that time, and there was Barry Gordy Sr., Diana Ross, Bill Cosby, Sidney Portier. There were a host of people who knew him between 1967 and 1970, but most importantly, they, these were people who were physically at the fight on October 26 in 1970. That's what allowed us to create our initial list of people that we wanted to reach out that, to. That's, that's really big to look at that list. That's a pretty all-star list. It was. Reaching out. It was yeah. a pretty comprehensive list. Yes. So going out and asking people to do it, how challenging was it? You did land a lot of them. But how that process, how did you I go think, about that? I would say I would give a tremendous amount of the credit to Manny Fassoon and Brittany Wyatt, uh, who are my producers. And they were the ones that actually uh, uh, did the research to track down these individuals to get their contact information. They were the ones who uh, initiated the initial phone calls and or emails to their agents or their managers or whomever their representative, representatives were. And, and then we were able to fund that be able to uh, actually have a meaningful conversation with each. And I must say of those that we contacted, I would say 90% of them were very amenable, very open to talking about their relationship with Muhammad Ali during that that three year period. And most importantly, what it was like to be in Atlanta, Georgia on October 26, 1970, to be in the Atlanta auditorium with that huge crowd for that first fight in three and a half years against Jerry Kwan. And yeah, and for people that, you know, you're a lot of people you contacted were really good friends of Ali in certain ways, right? They really oh, had yes. that. Yeah, I don't think you said it, they said there was a lot of people against Ali going into that fight, but he had lots of people of his friends that were really for helping him. There were, there were a lot of people rooting for him. And, and it began from the moment he was stripped of his title in 1967 by the New York City Boxing Commission. And this is before he was even a, a 
arrested and tried for draft evasion, the moment he refused to uh, step forward to, uh, to commit himself to the U.S. military, uh, the New York City Boxing Commission had stripped him of his title, and the other boxing commissions around the country had followed suit after New York. And mind you, this is before he was ever arrested or convicted of draft evasion, just wow. that he refused to step, to step forward. I think it was in uh, Houston, Texas, our, our, our draft board office. And with that alone, he was stripped of his title. And that's the, and like you said, when that happened, then finally he fought and wins. And some people were worried that he wouldn't win, right? There was a lot of concern. I understand, Ali was twenty-five when he lost his uh, lost right. his uh, his title. He was twenty-eight when he was about to go back in the ring. This is three and a half, almost four years since he had a professional belt, and this is why. I feel I have a tremendous debt of gratitude to his wife, Khalila Ali, who made sure that he got up every morning. He put on those big, thick combat boots and he would run those five miles. So because she had faith in him throughout that entire period, saying to him, the world cannot do without you. So thinking so, about the, the, the whole training process, what is that taken talked about in the documentary as well training to be ready for the fight once they agreed to it yes that's it that's 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 a very key part of the film itself is the recognition that ali was he let me just say he never felt out of shape over those three and a half years thanks to khalila ali he was always kind of in shape understand he had six weeks notice Oh my gosh. To, from the time he was informed in Philadelphia that he was going to go back into the ring to the time he actually came down, uh, well, he was in Atlanta, but to the time he came back into the ring in Atlanta. So that's not a tremendous long period of time to to have a rigorous uh, training routine to prepare for, for the fight against the number one contender in 1970. Jerry Quarry was no lightweight. People no, tried to play him off as if he was. But Jerry Quarry was, as I saw many people, was like the, the white Mike Tyson of his time. He was knocking guys out in the first round. Wow. Okay, he, was, he, was, he was a force to reckon with. So even though the fight ended after only three rounds, it only ended because Ali kept jabbing at a, a cut that he opened above Jerry Quarry's left eye. And the four uh, doctors that were on hand at the end of the third round examined Quarry's eye and they thought, no, we cannot let you go back out for another round. You may lose the eye. And that would have heartened Ali as well because he was not the kind of boxer that was... Uh, uh, that that wanted to hurt anybody permanently in the ring. He just wanted to go in and fight a clean fight and prevail. How hurt was Jerry Corey of losing that fight? How long? He, how did? How much did it take him to get I over? I think it? he was. I think he was more emotionally hardened than he was physically hurt. Because if you see the fight itself, once the. Um, uh, I think his name is uh, uh, Tony Perez, who is the, who who's the ref. Uh, on the night of the fight. Once he announces that the fight is over, Jerry Quarry jumps up and he's really upset that the fight's ended because he right. had worked so hard to prepare. And he knew that win or lose, he was making history just because he was going into the ring with the great Muhammad Ali. All right, so we've talked, what about now once you gather all these people together, how did you put the creative juices of using the footage that you're allowed to use plus these interviews with these amazing people, putting it all together into one thing and really making sure that the story is told. The interesting thing about documentary versus narrative, when you do a narrative, you already have a script and it serves kind of as your foundation, your Bible, if you will, and everything else builds on top of that. When it's a documentary, it's kind of the other way around. You shoot the footage, based upon a pretty clear outline in terms of where you want to go, but no matter where I would want to go, or I think I'm going with it, you cannot uh, predict what the person who you're talking to might say, and they may take you into another direction uh, beyond your script. 
that may be uh, uh, as enlightening or as engaging as what you were going after in the first place. So you have to have you have to be kind of loose in terms of the parameters that that you have. That said, once all of the footage was shot with Jim Brown and Evander Holyfield and uh, Ambassador Andrew Young and Senator Leroy Johnson, Mayor Sam Marcel, et cetera, we took it all back into the studio and we looked back at what we had. And from that, we were able to best uh, Use you utilize what we had in in juxtaposition with the with the actual script that we put together, and we then I then wrote the script on the back end, which is what you okay. hear, hear presented through our narrator Ken Ken Nelson. And then just going through that process to look through, and I think documentaries are so interesting because you're looking in the the eyes of what Ali went through, and hearing Muhammad's ex wife to hear. The other people and what their thought process was leading up to Atlanta, which again is so monumental with the, when the film came out. Once people saw it in the theaters, what was the feedback you were getting from a lot of people that were part of it, that were part of the documentary? Those who were actively engaged in the documentary, as well as, and I have to say, it was pretty much across the board uh, with those who thought of themselves as Ali enthusiasts, people who followed Ali for a good part of his professional career. Uh, and these were people who really thought that they knew everything that there was to know about Ali. After seeing the film, I, I would say that we had uh, Juan Carlos uh, had called me because he didn't actually go see it in the theater, but he, because he was sick uh, during that time when we had the Atlanta premiere, but he was extremely enthusiastic and very pleased with what he saw. In addition to which, there was Robert Castle, who right. uh, who put up the letter of credit for $600,000 to pay for the fight as well as Senator Leroy Johnson, who were very hesitant at first to even co commit to an interview because they had done so with other filmmakers and they weren't pleased with the end result in terms of how they were represented. But I'm happy to say both Senator Leroy Johnson as well as Robbie Castle were extremely pleased that we stayed to the story of what actually happened. And I think that's key. You stayed to the story to what actually happened and really stuck to the script, stuck to specifically the story and putting it all together in, in so many ways. Do you feel, what would you add to the story if you could, if you had the oh. opportunity to go back and add uh, actually, extra things? It's, it's interesting you should say that because I was just uh, approached a couple of days ago by a, a, a sales agent who wants to take our film and ex ex expand it into a, uh, a docu-series. And wow. And within the context of that, there are a tremendous amount of very salacious footage that that was left on the cutting room floor that we was not able to put into the actual uh, feature length documentary of Ali's comeback, the untold story. And so we're we're talking about uh, expanding the the component that addresses how much pressure that was placed on Ali to not go back into the ring through. The, uh, through the segment where Jimmy the Greek from New York goes to Las Vegas right. and coordinates a fight with the governor of Las Vegas, of Las Vegas between Ali and Jerry Quarry, and I'm not, not Jerry Quarry, but Joe Frazier at that time. And as they're just about to sign off on this, the phone rings and the, the governor picks up the phone. He hands it over to Jimmy the Greek. Jimmy the Greek is on the phone, wow. the, 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 the color flushes from his face and he gets off and he says, I gotta go, we can't do the fight. That was Howard Hughes that he was talking oh to. Oh my gosh. And I would like to actually expand that part of our film to really address who was Howard Hughes and other people of Howard exactly. Hughes caliber that had very strong, very, very, these were powerful people who had very strong feelings about Ali not ever going back into the ring because they saw him as a draft dodger. They saw him as being unpatriotic and they saw him as someone who was, who, who, who stood against the American creed. Exactly. So what about, what, what's the next documentary for you? The next documentary for me actually is one that uh, in some ways, it's an extension of what, we what we've already done. I'm in, 
That is, uh, Khalil Ali contacted me about, oh, six, seven months ago. I, I am, she had Lloyd Price, the, 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 the pop singer from the 1960s, wow. on the phone. And we had a three-way conversation where she had uh, laid out the concept for doing a book into Ali's comeback. And that book would, would be the Rumble in the Jungle. And there's a tremendous amount of engaging information that almost nobody knows because when most people think about that fight, people tend to think that that fight was engineered by um, I, uh, the gentleman with the wild fro. Uh, what's his name? Oh, 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 oh my gosh, it'll come to me in a second. Yeah, Don I, King. Don King. Okay, Don King is the face of that fight, but actually Lloyd Price was the one who set wheels in motion by going to uh, Kinshasa and speaking with the president of the Congo at least six months before. Right. So, so that's yeah. great. So you have to keep us uh, updated on that. We're going to keep uh, throughout, especially February, uh, the opportunity through Black History Month to kind of highlight more of uh, this film and especially a perfect month like this to highlight the film but where can people pick up the film right now oh right now if people are went to amazon prime you type in ollie's comeback the untold story it's available there like if you would like to uh uh, uh rent it or stream it that's that's one uh, uh, option the other is to be able to um acquire the the actual dvd of the film it's available on walmart as well as on itunes there is a there, and if you go to ollie's comeback www.aliscomebackllc.com, you'll see the entire listing of other uh, locations online and in stores where either you can stream it or you can uh, acquire the DVD. Well, Art, appreciate it. Looking forward to continuing highlighting Ali's comeback, the untold story throughout the month of March. And who knows? I mean, February, but maybe the month of March as well. So take care. Thank you. All right, guys. That was the Neil Haley Show. Neil Haley here. Lensec has been a sponsor of the Neil Haley Show and Total Media Network for around a year and a half. And I wanted to tell you a little bit about Lensec. Lensec has been a pioneer in IP security videos since 1998. The company is a trusted security partner with experience around the world. Lensec has experience working with customers in higher education, K-12 education, government, public safety, critical infrastructure, healthcare, commercial, and more. The physical security experts at Lensec help customers develop enterprise solutions for their complex physical security projects using our flagship software, Perspective VMS. Lensec's enterprise-level video management software, Perspective VMS, is a browser-based software that streams and captures IP security camera video. The latest version of PVMS uses HTML5 interactive features in a thin client application that is designed to provide real-time situational awareness. Access control and other advanced features are integrated into a unified security platform, creating an ability to track behavior and movement while monitoring the live or recorded video. For more information, please visit Lensec.com. And now back to the show. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Rob Roselli Show. And I'm excited to welcome to the program, Rob Roselli. Rob, it's not, you know, it's just for you, especially, uh, to see the country change so much so quickly. It's got a, it's making you nervous, isn't it? It's like, I can't believe what's happening. Well, yeah, it's, it's happening at breakneck speed. As, as fast as Joe Biden can sign executive orders, is as fast as the country is changing. And it's really... It really is disturbing is what's going on. Um, I mean, between the the border, I mean, stopping the border wall construction. So he's obviously what he's doing there is he's encouraging tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of future democratic voters to come across the nation and further lock themselves into power. You know, the push to make Washington DC or the 51st state, although unconstitutional, they're pushing for that. All of a sudden, the Constitution doesn't matter. All, all these people that, that cried that Trump was unconstitutional and wanted to enforce the Constitution, which Trump was there, the 25th Amendment, all, all, all this other nonsense. All of a sudden, the Constitution doesn't matter. 
Um, you got this whole thing going on on Wall Street with this Reddit revolt um, against these hedge funds managers, and I'm sure people have been reading about that. So, in general, the world is going crazy. In addition, you have you have the the cancellation. Now, Trump was planning to withdraw from Afghanistan, get us out of one of these useless foreign wars, but that that whole withdrawal has been canceled. You got more troops moving into Syria. You got troops moving into Washington D.C. It's like the whole world is going crazy. In particular, the United States. Okay, the mask mandate. You know, forget we got this whole COVID thing. Now they're saying one day they're saying masks are ineffective. The other, the next day they're saying wear two masks. The whole thing is like I've been saying. The whole thing is just it's helter skelter. It's crazy, you know. Is the bottom line is just and this is coming from our leadership, which is really disturbing. They either don't know what's going on or they're trying to, I think they're trying to consolidate power is what they're obviously doing, but they're, and they know that there's 70 plus million people that aren't going to stand for it. So who knows where this is all going to go in terms of what these people are trying to pull in terms of consolidating power. But the bottom line is it's the whole thing is just crazy. It's it's definitely it's crazy because the fact is we're just going the direct polar opposite really fast, and it's a lot of people still don't believe that President Biden won, and he's never done anything to address the other side of the of of the people, and understand why they think this and to try to uni- unify the country. If you're going to just do all these things so quickly, uh when half the country doesn't agree, you're really running it. You're running into a lot of issues that are going to come up in the next couple months. Well, and don't forget, you got the whole impeachment thing. Now, now I talk about unconstitutionally trying to impeach a president who's no longer in office, which is just, it's just pure silliness with everything going on in the world and the country. And this is what these people are worried about yet. They tell us they're interested in unity. So they're all, they're all just a pack of liars and deceivers. Um, so the whole thing is just the bottom line is insanity and craziness is the way this whole thing is going. I mean, we're moving this way for quite some time, Neil. This didn't just happen overnight. I mean, you have then you have people like Bill Gates trying to push for his vaccines, okay, and the history of vaccines I covered in the un American genocidal complex, at least in terms of the AIDS virus and where that came from can't see the smallpox vaccine and, and the hepatitis B vaccine like we've talked about. So who knows what what concoctions are in the current dose of vaccines. And I've heard all kinds of things, microchips and mRNA vaccines and changing your genetic structure and all this sort of thing. So this is what's coming in the current batch of COVID vaccines, right? which is why a lot of people don't want to take them. But on the flip side, they're going to start making the vaccines mandatory for travel and for banking and for all kinds of things. So you got that whole subset of lunacy uh, and controversy coming at us at at breakneck speed as well. So, you know, in response to this, Neil, years ago, I wrote my my last book, Pleased to Meet You. Okay, and that's that basically covers the insanity and, and. Really, what that book is based on is based on the deal that Satan proposed to Jesus in, in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, and basically said, If you bow to me, I'll, I'll grant you control of the world. Because obviously, he made that offer because he did have control of the world. I mean, and, and if you notice in the past, well, I don't think it's a parable, but Jesus didn't deny that he had control. Jesus didn't say, No, you don't have control of the world. Jesus said, worship you know worship god and worship god only was his response so that's the premise of my book pleased to meet you so in other words we have a bunch of devil worshipers running the country and in fact running the world and this is where the lunacy ultimately is coming from exactly and so and that's that's the the big thing that is where the lunacy is going uh for sure and i mean what do you say to the other side not the politicians, but the other side that believes in this, these things that are happening just based on 
just how they've been educated or how they've been informed and not informed on the other side. What do you say to the other side? Is it you blame the politicians more than the people? Well, I, first of all, if you, if you follow the power structure, you follow up the, the symbolic pyramid, you know, the great pyramid with the all-seeing eye, and of course, the all-seeing eye in the back of the $1 bill. I mean, there it is right there in our faces. We got the great pyramid of Giza with a an uncapped pyramid with an, all, an illuminated all-seeing eye with an open eye, which harkens all the way back to Genesis chapter three, you know, you shall be as gods and your eyes shall be opened. So the power structure, you know, the, if you if you envision, you know, the base of the pyramid is are the suckers, the people that actually believe these politicians and all their lies. And as I documented in my first book and, and, and on my website, again, that's boxofsunglasses.com, where you can get the book, Pleased to Meet You, and you get the links to it and my other books. But anyway, um, if you follow the, 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 all the lies, the people that believe that carbon dioxide is a pollutant and believe in evolution and, and believe the Federal Reserve System is actually there for our benefit and that it's federal and, and it's part of the government, which it absolutely is not. So you follow all those lies and you follow up and you keep going up the pyramid. And the further you go up the pyramid, the more exclusive the club gets. So you get to the absolute top. At the absolute top of the pyramid, you have these people vying for control of the world right now. And that would be Bill Gates, George Soros, uh, the Rockefeller Foundation. I mean, David Rockefeller died a couple of years ago but you still have his foundation running out there. So those are the people at the top of the pyramid and they're the ones that control the monetary system, which ultimately controls academia, which actually ultimately controls politicians and ultimately controls our politicians. So, and this is just, again, going back to John chapter two, you know, this is Jesus chasing out the money changers from the temple, chasing them out with whips. All right, so those people represent the money changers and the Pharisees that control the population and control the money supply. And when you control the money supply, you can pretty much control everything. And that's that's pretty much where, where it goes in, in, in my book, Pleased to Meet You. And it just kind of, it kind of tries to untwist, untwist the lies of what's happening in the world and, and then try to put it into some kind of logical sequence, if you will. And it's a conversation between Satan and a character known as O'Brien. Now, O'Brien is the main character or the, or that represents the government from Orwell's 1984. That's why I chose that name. And in the name of Satan himself, I don't have time to get into that right now. It is actually right. taken, actually, it's taken from the Satan worshippers over at Lucifer's Publishing Company, known as Lucy's Trust over at the United Nations. Um, and that gets into the whole thing with, you know, the devil worshippers there, the literal devil worshippers at the United Nations. And I'm not just saying that to be funny. Uh, I mean, that literally. But anyway, we don't have time to get into that right now. But that's where his name comes from. And it's just a conversation. And they talk about all these things about the manipulations of, of society, uh, the fake wars, fake economy. And who's actually controlling this whole mess? And this is and this is why you're seeing all this all this confusion and all these lies and everything going back and forth. And people are scared because who's ultimately in control of all this? Are just imperfect people trying to control it. George Soros, Bill Gates, people I mentioned before, the Chinese Communist Party, um, Putin's probably in there. Who knows what his role is in the whole thing? But eventually these this this alliance of people trying to control the world to the United Nations is going to break up and you're going to have World War III, uh, which is going to be cataclysmic. What does Russia okay. think of, of uh, Biden being president? President Biden? Um, I, I don't think they're very happy. I think they like Trump because at least Trump, you know, I'm not saying they like Trump, but they, I think they respected the fact that he was a man of his word. And did what he said. Uh, in Biden, you have kind of a weasel, a guy who says one thing and does another. Uh, not to mention the warmongering. Not to mention that Biden moved in 
U.S. troops into Syria for, for who, who knows why, which is a Russian ally. Okay, you have them saber rattling in the, in the Black Sea. Uh, as I mentioned before, you have them uh, reversing Trump's withdrawal from Afghanistan. So Biden's, although a liberal, you know, which is amazing to me how stupid these people are, supposed to be Mr. Liberal, Mr. Democrat, and he's, he's turning out to be quite the warmonger. So I don't think Russia can be too happy about that. Yeah, exactly. But we'll have to see. All right. Well, boxofsunglasses.com, Rob, and I I guess we just have to pray, right? Well, yeah, that's the key. And that's why I put God's Simple Salvation Plan on the on the website. You know, I put it on top. That's probably the most important thing. That's the only thing that's true anymore. I mean, don't don't trust the news. I mean, pay attention to what's going on. You know, don't don't trust anybody. I mean, nobody's perfect, including myself. I'll be the first one to tell you that, but um, that's where it is. I mean, that's that's ultimately where the where the truth is. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You know, John fourteen six is is ultimately where where it lies. So people definitely need to get in tune with their Bibles and God's simple salvation plan and and this sort of thing. And uh, Follow the news, but stop believing these politicians for sure. I mean, they're just, they're always going to disappoint you. And 90% of the time, just lie right to your face. So, again, boxofsunglasses.com. There, all the information is in the books and, and whatnot. And we'll have to pick this back up next week, right. I guess. All right, Rob. We'll talk then. Okay, take care. All right, yeah. All Thanks. right, that, that was the Robert Sully Show, guys. Take care. Celebrity slots. Free spin. Free to play mobile social slot games in the likeness of your favorite celebrities. Making money. Spin to win celebrity experiences through sweepstakes. Free to download. Free to play. Yeah, baby. What are you waiting for? Win meet and greets celebrity merchandise, gift cards, and more. Download Celebrity Slots today. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the, our broadcast of Truth Just Below the Surface, Freedom from Addiction, and also the Neil Haley Show. And I'm excited to welcome the program, Reverend Wynn Henderson, MD. Wynn, how are you? And another uh, crazy topic we have today regarding the truth about COVID-19, just below the service part two. Neil, uh, this follows up with a program that uh, we did a couple days ago. And between the two programs, people who are listening ought to be able to figure out the whole whole problem of COVID-19 and what it's about, so we're going to get into that uh, right now. And I'm going to start by saying that many doctors around the world started using the anti-malarial drug hydroxychloroquine early on in the COVID-19 pandemic. Among them was Dr. Vladimir Jalenko, a board-certified family physician in a Jewish community in Monroe County, New York. He garnered national attention in March 2020 when he told radio host Sean Hannity that he had a near 100% success rate treating COVID-19 patients with hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin, and zinc sulfate. He said, I've seen remarkable results. It really prevents the progression of the disease and patients get better. In response, County health officials said Zelenko's claims were unsubstantiated and urged residents to listen to public health officials. In this interview, he explains how hydroxychloroquine works against COVID-19 and discusses the lies spun about the drug to suppress its widespread use. 
Zelenko had a very active Twitter account and would get millions of views on his tweets. And like many other truth tellers in this crazy pandemic, he was censored and recently removed from Twitter. When we have a large population of people that need to be treated, it has to be oral, cheap, safe, and effective, he said. By the way, this is not new. This information was known in 2005. He said, there are papers with Dr. Anthony Fauci's name on it, calling hydrochloroquine a miracle drug. Fauci called it a vaccine. There's a paper in which he called it an absolute dream treatment and vaccine. So it's conveniently forgotten, but that's what it is. It's a matter of scientific record. As the SARS-CoV-2 swept through his tight-knit Jewish community, Zelenko was seeing anywhere from 50 to 250 patients a day. At this point, he's treated more than 3,000 patients with COVID-19-related symptoms. Only a third of them actually received his triple drug regimen, and the remaining patients were in low-risk categories that did not require any treatment. In all, Zelenko has only had 15 patients who ended up requiring hospitalization, and four of which were intubated. All were eventually successfully uh, recovered. The remaining 11 were admitted for intravenous antibiotics for pneumonia. In all, only three of his high-risk patients died with COVID-19, not necessarily as a result of, which puts the mortality rate for his treatment at under 1%, 0.3%. And this has been reproduced. You don't have to listen to me, he said. You can call it anecdotal if you want, but there are now Harvard professors of virology with 4,000 patient experiences. Now, I personally reported on two family practice physicians in Texas with about a combined total of 1,000 patients treated with a similar protocol with similar results on previous podcasts, which you can go back and listen to. Dr. George Farid, for example, or Dr. Harvey Risch from the Yale School of Epidemiology, who has shown that it's absolutely statistically proven that HCQ used in the pre-hospital setting is absolutely effective. It's impossible for it to be a mistake, he says. At that time, the whole world had been focusing on building respirators and increasing hospital capacity instead of putting emphasis on pre-hospital care. I found that bizarre because that's never what we do in medicine, he said. We use common sense and intervene at the earliest stages. It's much easier to fix a small problem than a large problem. If you look at the CDC, they recommended starting the treatment of influenza with antiviral drugs within the first 48 hours, not a week, except when it came to COVID-19. We were told to send the patients home. And when they got sicker, then send them to the hospital where there was a good chance they were going to get intubated, especially in March and April. At that point in the city, they had mortality rates of 80%. So it was a death sentence. None of that made any sense to me at all. So I quickly started to brush up on my virology. Zinc, one of these drugs that he recommends, inhibits RNA polymerase. And the fact that zinc can't get into the cell, it needs help. So Zelenko went on to describe how he settled on HCQ, the so-called zinc ionophore, meaning that it shuttles zinc into the cell. He decided to treat high-risk patients as early as possible, and that turned out to be the key. Early treatment really saves lives when it comes to COVID-19. This is not a situation where the wait and see strategy is well advised. 
According to Zelenko, during the first five days of SARS-CoV-2 infection, the viral load remains fairly steady. Around day five, it exponentially increases, potentially overwhelming the immune system. This also meant that he could not afford to wait uh, to treat. The uh, test results at the time were taking him five days, but then most patients would already have progressed too far. So if the patient exhibited symptoms, especially if they reported the loss of taste or smell as well, you start treatment immediately. In hindsight, about 90% of the test of people experiencing symptoms had positive tests. Today, we have even more information, of course, which means that there are more tools available besides HCQ, zinc, and azithromycin. Ivermectin comes to mind. Unfortunately, as discussed by Jelenko, there was essentially a psychological operation put into place to scare people away from using HCQ. A big part of that was turning it into a political issue. From the start, doctors who used the drug were threatened with the loss of their medical license, which is unheard of for a drug with such a long history of safe use. The US government made matters worse by only issuing emergency youth authorization for in-hospital use and not for outpatient settings. Meanwhile, HCQ had been used for about 60 years in people with chronic conditions such as lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. So the hypocrisy, the loss of common sense, the outright indoctrination killed a lot of people. Also, this country was traumatized. Even if a doctor was willing to give it, the patients were afraid to take it. The biggest reason for the fear was unfortunately due to falsified studies and trials using toxic doses. It's difficult not to suspect an ulterior motive in light of those facts. As noted by Jelenko, a main component of pandemic response, namely pre-hospital or outpatient treatment was suppressed. The question is why? One obvious reason was that it was a presidential election year, and then President Trump came out in support of HCQ in March of 2020. His announcement sparked immediate backlash from a chronically hostile media. There were plenty of people willing to use every possible way to vilify the president and to discredit anything that he might have said that would give him a win. Then, of course, there were financial interests at play. Millions of dollars were being invested into new drugs like remdesivir, for example, a drug that costs more than $3,000 per treatment and is only for in-hospital use. Of course, HCQ is less than $12. Hospitals were also paid tens of thousands of dollars more for COVID-19 patients. So there was no lack of incentive to get pay people into the hospital and to keep them there either. Meanwhile, Jolenko's early outpatient treatment cost about 20 bucks. As for fraudulent and misleading studies, there uh, first uh, was raised an alarm by a VA study in Virginia, which found that ACQ didn't prevent death. However, they only used it on late stage patients who were already on ventilators. From there, they incorrectly extrapolated that it would not be effective for helping people in earlier stage, which simply was not true. Other trials simply used the wrong dosage. While doctors reporting success with the drug are using drugs around, uh, doses around, 200 to 400 milligrams per day uh, for either a few days or maybe a couple of weeks. Studies uh, such as Bill and Melinda Gates funded recovery trial use 2,400 milligrams of HCQ during the first 24 hours. That's three to six times higher than the daily doses recommended. And this was uh, followed by 
400 milligrams every 12 hours for nine or more days for a cumulative dose of 9,200 milligrams over 10 days. The uh, solidarity trial led by the World Health Organization used two grams on the first day and the uh, cumulative dose of 8,800 milligrams over 10 days. These doses are simply too high. More is not necessarily better. And guess what? You might kill the patient. As noted by Zelenko, these doses are enough to kill an elephant. It's really unclear as to why these studies use such enormous doses, seeing how the doses this drug is normally prescribed in for a range of conditions never go that high. And those studies, uh, what those studies did prove was that if you poison someone with lethal doses of a drug, they're going to die. Then there was a famous Lancet study that the World Health Organization used to justify banning HCQ. This study was withdrawn when it was discovered that the data had been completely and utterly fabricated with falsely generated data from a fly-by-night company. It was supposed to be a meta-analysis of 90,000 patients, which showed HCQ had lethal effects. Unfortunately, before the study was withdrawn and taken down from Lancet, this fake study resulted in the WHO putting a moratorium on the use of HCQ, which didn't improve pub public trust in the drug. Even more egregious, the United States FDA used that fake paper as one of its justifications for removing the emergency use authorization for HCQ, even though the study had already been retracted. <coughs> According to Zelenko, HCQ is the safest medication in the history of medicine. Azithromycin is one of the more common antibiotics used in medicine, and zinc is a mineral that's well-known and well-tolerated. These drugs were affordable and available to take home, which was very important, and they work. The virus is not dangerous if you approach it correctly. If you treat it in the right time frame, it's no definition, uh, it's no different than a bad flu. In June of 2020, Zelenko and two co-authors published this study showing that treating COVID-19 patients who had confirmed positive test results as early as possible after symptoms onset with zinc, low-dose HCQ, and azithromycin reduced the odds of hospitalization by 84% and all-cause deaths by 500% compared with no treatment. Crazy enough, even though Zelenko went to great lengths to share his clinical findings with the White House and the National Institutes of Health, he received no support and was told they had no use for it. What's happened over the last 20 years is that Academic elite and pharmaceutical industry have bred a monopoly on medical truth, he said. They feel only data generated through randomized controlled trials, pharmacological company-sponsored trials, or those that are coming out of major academic institutions can be viewed as the truth. Anything coming from a frontline country doctor must be anecdotal. That's the crime here. They created artificial barriers that prevented the flow of common sense and life-saving information. This is a disease of affluence because the rich countries could afford the waste of money. The poor countries like Honduras had no options. They couldn't afford respirators. They didn't have enough hospital capacity. So they gravitated toward cheap generic approaches, and those are the ones that have the best outcome. Zelenko mentioned Uganda, which has a population of about 50 million people, yet has recorded only 325 deaths. Let me say that again. 
50 million people, 325 deaths. I think this was a genocide against the elderly and a crime against humanity, he said. There are plenty of people who have blood on their hands, including the media. He also stressed that the pandemic response, including the suppression of HCQ, has clearly been a global coordinated effort. You have to ask yourself, who benefits from a destabilized world? Who benefits from chaos on the streets, from anarchy, from financial despair, from psychological trauma? In some parts of this country, suicide rates are up 600%. The amount of child and spousal abuse we've seen is absolutely ridiculous. The amount of collateral damage from preventable illnesses like heart disease and cancer are skyrocketing because people are not getting access to routine care. A lot of people weren't getting elective surgery on time. So there's been a lot of collateral damage. The shutdown is killing more people than the virus. The virus is not dangerous if you approach it correctly, if you treat it in the right time frame, It's no different than a bad flu. You can deal with it. You don't have to shut down the world. Uh, Neil, at this point, my voice is going out, and I'm going to break until next time where we do part three. And, okay. All uh, right. Well, I mean, it's just, and I understand because there's so much material, and and kind of add to adding to this, uh, listening to what you're saying when this is just so mind blowing. If this is again what we're gaining this information from. Because again, if we can end this pandemic today, why don't we? That's why we see people like Dr. Caxton that are so um, boisterous about this and saying this is truly uh, Dr. Stella Emanuel, same thing. Also, uh, our, our good friend, Dr. Hayden and other people that we've researched. It's just, we need to get out of this pandemic. It's time to move forward and get back to normal. And hopefully someday we will. Yeah, Neil, it's uh, it's terrible what has been done to the United States population. And it's not because of great scientists that, that has been done. It's because of political motivation. And uh, that's just unconscious, in my opinion. Okay. All right. Well, that, again, was uh, Freedom Prediction, Truth, Justice, Service. Take care, guys.